0: I want to go tonight to the panhandle of Oklahoma in another time and another place, to the raggedy remnants of a farm. What's left of it, it's 1939. It's called the Great American Dust Bowl. There's a leather-faced farmer and his frail wife there standing on the porch of a wood-frame shack. It's covered in dust up above the windows. They scan the landscape. It's flat and it's barren. They can see for 50 miles and they've seen nothing but cloudless skies for eight miserable years. There are three barefoot children. Stand beside them in their clothes made out of tattered flower sacks. I've worn those. It always always hasn't been like this. I've been in touch with poverty. I was raised so far back in the woods, we had to use hoot owls for roosters. I didn't know what a June bug was. I thought they were August bugs because ours didn't show up till August. I didn't do real well in school because we raised too poor to pay attention. I got a lot of these. You want me to stop? stand there. They look up and they search the bone-weary faces of their mother and father for any sign of hope or help. It was April 14th, 1935 that was the back-breaking blow. At five o'clock in the afternoon, a cry from one of those skinny little dirty children caused those parents to come running out onto that porch once again. They looked out and they saw a churning, rolling black wall of dust. It was devouring everything in its sight. Birds dropped from the sky. Jackrabbits suffocated on that rolling, churning, relentless wall of dirt. That storm contained 600 million pounds of dust. 600 million pounds in one day. After eight years of drought, and dryness and hard-pan dirt and no crops and no rain and no clouds in the sky. Finally, it passed. That's when all the neighbors packed up and they headed west. They went as far as Sacramento, California. They'd abandoned all hope. Of any rain or any relief, they've given up like the modern church. So, the modern church, in all of its dryness, to drown out the wails of pain and hurt and loneliness and brokenness and emptiness and hard pan and brass heavens. They simply said, Sing louder. Drown out the cries and the moans of people who feel like it's normal for a man to want to be a woman. Drown out the screams of those where 2 million people have walked across the border of a so-called nation. I'm sending more money to Ukraine than I know to help the suffering church of Jesus Christ there, of course. But I'm a little bit concerned about a nation that sends trillions to, to, to secure the borders of Ukraine. And the church says, sing louder. We're hurting. We're broken. We're bruised. We're battered. We're lonely. We're desperate. We're diseased. And because preachers have no faith, they decide that God only heals sometimes. Just sing louder. 40% of all Christians in America that walked away from gathering together in the church, excuse me, 48%, 48% of the so-called believers, Holy Ghost filled and fire baptized and tongue talking, left the church. Three million people a year leave the church of Jesus Christ. They did a survey the other day. They did a survey among thousands of evangelical churches. They surveyed those pastors. And they said, here are questions for you. Very basic doctrine. Very basic theology. Not getting into the nuances of premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Not getting into the debate, debate over Calvinism and Arminianism. Nothing like that. These questions. Was, did Jesus live a sinless life? Amen. Amen. I'm not talking about the third grader Sunday school class. I'm talking about the reprobates filling pulpits. God didn't bring me back from the dead to play with it. I ain't got nobody to please but him. 48% left the church and declared they will never come back in person. Hey, y'all asked me back. Watch this. Question number two. Now this one you'll have to get out your theology books for. Is Satan real or imaginary? No, 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 no. (laughs) Real or imaginary? 70% 70% answered both of those questions, no. No. Yes, Jesus, no, Jesus didn't live a sinless in his life. Yes, Satan is imaginary. 70%. Of those that remained, they asked one further question. Would you those that said, yes, Jesus lived a sinless life, and, you know, yes, the devil is real, not imaginary. Of those that were left that agreed with those two statements, 98% said, although I believe it, I would never preach it or teach it to my church. The number one question given, or the number one reason given, that's nice. The number one reason given was we don't want to offend anyone. The modern church has replaced. Watch me, watch me. Has replaced. That convicts me with that offends me. And preachers are playing, tiptoeing through the tulips, attempting not to offend anyone. (laughs) Would you buy a Bible? I'll give you one free. That means 2% of the preachers in the United States of America filling evangelical pulpits will tell you the truth. 2%. There are 100 churches in this city. Two of them will tell the truth about something as simple as Jesus living a sinless life and the devil being real. And we want to play. And we want to sermonize. And we want to have another meeting. And we talk in tongues. Ikamashikamah. Take a ride right in my Honda um, to, to tie my boat. I'm gonna I'm gonna break your bubble right now. Since, since we don't know any theology to begin with. Number one, the devil is real. Number two, speaking in tongues is not the evidence of being filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, you don't have to clap. You don't have to clap, because I'll tell you the truth. We got whole denominations built on when you can and cannot receive the Holy Ghost. what are we doing? Pastors, let's do this. Instead of helping them speak in other tongues, let's tell them. Here's when you're going to know you got the Holy Ghost. When you win people to Jesus. Oh no, you don't want to clap now. Because you ain't invited anybody to church for the last 15 years. We think Deborah George is an anomaly. What would happen if every one of you in your circle just shared your faith? I preached like this the other day. A little precious uh, Latino woman, she she. I know her personally. She helps my wife. And uh, after that service, she, she went, we keep Bibles on the front row because we have to keep Bibles on the front row because we can't even keep people bringing Bibles that sit on the front row. And I don't want to shoot them with the TV camera and then none of them got a Bible. So we keep Bibles. She said, Pastor, I have to repent. Why? By the way, repentance is the language of revival. This this is not a language of revival. That's not the language of revival. The language of revival, like in the Hebrides, where two sisters in their 80s, one of them blind her entire life, the other bent over almost double got together and began praying for five hours a night. Two sisters in the Hebrides, and it got so violently powerful in a move of God that people would fall down on the ground, people, and give their lives to Christ with nobody preaching. The conviction power of the living Christ became so blessed so pure, so sweet that it drove men and women to their knees in parking lots that had never even heard the gospel my great God it takes 100 churches a hundred thousand dollars to win one soul to Christ. If every person in the United States tomorrow decided to get in church. Every person, only 20% of the people in this nation would have a seat. They got out there, that dust was rolling. That little child cried out. Mom and dad came running through the dust and they looked out on the horizon. And when they looked out on the horizon, they had to look back at each other to make sure they weren't imagining it. And suddenly they saw it. Both at the same time. Huge storm clouds. Purple. Blue. Magenta, finally, they could begin to smell moisture in the air. A celebration broke out just coming up from the clapboard boards on that porch. They were laughing. They were weeping. They were crying. They were shouting. There it was just inside the screen door lying open on a table was a King James version of the Bible. It was mysteriously opened to the second chapter of the book of Joel. Two verses were underlined in pencil. Be glad then, you children of Zion, for the Lord will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. I share this with you because the America that you love and that I love is in a drought of a very, very different kind. We are in a drought, a dust bowl of the Holy Ghost. Our nation withers and shrivels, fully embracing postmodern relativism, sexual hedonism, a pandemic. On a false gods, a mortal race land, barren and powerless and unable to sustain any life. The rain we so desperately need has a name in his modern ears as hopelessly old fashioned, outlandishly outdated. It's called revival and it's been far 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 too long since we've felt its refreshing rain falling in torrents over the sapphire sill of heaven's gate that mighty life-changing history-making culture altering power of God where are the people of God those prophets of God, who will weep between the porch and the altar, calling us back to the discarded values of the past, blowing the trumpet in Zion, calling a solemn assembly, sanctifying the past. Where are, I ask you, where are? Those Holy Ghost filled people of God, so intoxicated by the spirit of intercession that they prostrate themselves over our altars. Wait a minute, where are our altars? I went to one of the biggest churches. In America, if I said the name, you'd fall in a chair. The pastor said, I memorized your sermons. I preached them over and over. And he went to reciting sermons that I had preached 20, 25 years ago. He said, I I followed you my whole life and he kept it a good secret. But he said, I want you to come. And I want you to preach for me. This is our sanctuary. I said, I, I'd call it a tabernacle. I wouldn't call it a sanctuary. A sanctuary is where you go to hide. A tabernacle is where you go to visit with God. And the chairs were right here. And I said, "Um, where are your altars? Oh, we don't do that. I said, well, I love you, but you don't do me. I'm going where there's no altar. I'm not going where there's no weeping, I'm not going where there's no knees with jeans that are worn bare. My grandmother wore an apron and every single apron she had was worn bare around the knees. I remember going into my home when I was eight years of age and I could hear somebody screaming and I ran up the stairs and there was the vacuum cleaner running with no one at the controls. Screaming continued. I ran to the upstairs back bedroom. I could still hear it. It was coming from the closet. It was my precious mother. She was screaming my name. I'm eight years old. My biggest sin, I guess, was one time I stole a hockey puck. and I snuck it back in and put it away before anybody could tell. I understand stood the convicting power of God to the point that I was a baseball pitcher in Little League and my my coach came up to me and he said, uh, look, you've got a really good arm, but what is there something in your eye? I said, why? He said, you keep going like this before you throw the ball. I was ashamed to tell him I was praying and good Baptist boys they're taught you close your eyes when you pray you said, well I don't want my children to grow up with that really she was screaming and wailing as if someone were dying and she said God Don't let Rodney die without Jesus. Where are those mothers? Where are those paralyzed? I think he's in travail. Our altars calling upon a holy God with groanings, with strange utterances, with tongues of fire, with tongues of power, who will turn the tide in this seeker sensitive age of slumber and people pleasing powerless. Preachers, where will we find those possessed with a passion for the lost, the damned, the dying, the hurting, the bruised, the abandoned, those that are falling by the tens of thousands dead in our streets? Who is there? Where is Benaniah? Where is Beniah? Who among us will charge into a pit on a snowy day and slay a lion, a false doctrine with its industrial complex of entertainment Christianity? Second Chronicles 7:14, I find to be instructive. Yes. If look at it. If if I spent three months trying to get past if. Tiny little two letter connector it ties all of Christianity like the red rivulet bloodline flowing from Genesis to Revelation. If, here's what we do not seem to understand about God everything he does in the earth is conditional. Otherwise, everybody would just be saved. Tell me a blessing of God that you can receive any other way than if then. It doesn't say, it shall be given to you, good measure. up, pressed down, shaken together, shall men give them to your bosom. It doesn't say that. It says, give. And if you give, then. Every blessing of God, every covenant of God is conditional. If my people called by my name, I want to preach every line of it. If my people are you his people? Are you sure? Are you sure? My mentor. The great Leonard Ravenhill said, I doubt that 5% of the people sitting in our churches are born again. What you did is make a decision. That's what preachers say. We had three decisions for Christ today. Well, but did anybody get saved? A a decision is a conclusion that is reached after consideration. That's all. I considered, because the preacher told me I was going to get a Cadillac and God was going to just bless my bank account and I was going to walk in health and wealth and my children were never gonna be sick, so I made a decision. Yeah, I think I'll follow Jesus. Sounds pretty cool. I made a decision. Then maybe, maybe, not in most churches, but maybe you made a confession, right? A confession. Now, not in most churches. There's not confession. Because confession is an admission of guilt. If we will confess our sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Somebody asked me the other day. They said, Pastor, you preach repentance to Christians. Yeah. Here's when you can stop repenting. When you stop sinning. Don't mess with me tonight. Now I'm loaded. Don't mess with me tonight because you have been duped by the false doctrine that repentance is a bad thing, that confessing your sins is a bad thing, and you need a Bible because your Bible said it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. My great God. But you're still not saved You made a decision, you made a confession, but you haven't been converted. Conversion is to change one thing into something else. It's called, you shall become a new creature, creature, watch me a new species of being that has never existed before. Different in every essential detail and quality. God did not save you so you could try to be better. I I ain't getting no shouting in here now. I better get back on prosperity. Huh? You want to grow up? You want revival? You want to get out of nursery school Christianity? Oh, I'm born again spirit-filled. No hunger for the Word. When you get what I'm talking about, you won't have to try to be in the Word. You'll have to try to stop. You, If you get the Holy Ghost, if you... If you get baptized in the Holy Ghost, you will be winning the waitress to Jesus before you get out the restaurant. You will be handing out tracts at every drive through window. You will call everybody in your family because you will receive a divine revelation of the cost paid and the price of one eternal soul. Will you not leave the ninety and nine broken hearts. Would I have gotten booked? Probably here, but nowhere else. If I'd have said, okay, on my night, it's going to be burden night. We're going to pray. See, some of you don't even understand. Well, I want wealth. Do you want us burden? 50% 50% of the people that win the lottery end up killing themselves. Can you handle the burden of wealth? Do you have. Look, I know I'm a Renaissance guy. I know that. I know I reach back to the tried and tested principles that have dethroned principalities and powers in the past with one hand and forward to the promise and the purpose and the power of a brand new generation. And I bring them together. We must return to the discarded values of the past. The great Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, if you have a circus to get them You'll have to have a circus to keep them. It is entirely possible, my dear pastor friends, which this building seems to be full of tonight, it is entirely possible and biblically probable for you to lose people and gain anointing. Ask Gideon. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> this is the mandate of God Almighty. This is the mandate of the living Christ. His clarion call to raise up a culturally incorrect army of redemptive change. Here and now in Florida before we're forever doomed and they're forever lost. Revival if. if, Only if. My people call by my name. Four part prescription. Most people bail on part number one. Will humble themselves. Humble themselves. Humble themselves. We lose more on the next step. Pray. Why won't people pray? The average Pentecostal preacher in America, you City Harvest Network preachers, prays eight minutes a day. No wonder we have so many failures. God give us some prophets And fewer profiteers. (laughs) Write that down. My pastor said, If I die with a dime, I have broken my covenant with God. Give us some ministers. Of the gospel instead of manipulators who will echo the voice of the mighty Apostle who cried out in Acts 21 13 I am ready not to be bound only but also to die for the name of Christ such are the people of God assigned To this hour of desperation, a revolutionary, revenant, relevant remnant of revivalists loosed into every single church and into the heart of every single church goer until we restore a nation, revitalize a civilization, rescue a generation. The issue is that we've yet to understand that the apex of all Christian endeavor must become to place the jewel of a soul in the crown of our Savior, that the Lamb of God slain may receive the reward of his suffering. We have to receive a divine revelation of the value of one single lost soul. Only, only such a God-given Holy Spirit birthed burden will cause us to weep between the porch and the altar. Nehemiah, that great prophet that chronicled the history of the nation of Israel, through their captivity in a parallel time and culture to the one that you and I are living in right now. Nehemiah never wore a crown. He never commanded an army. Nehemiah never conquered a nation. He wasn't known for his philosophy nor his great oratory. Yet he was the very mouthpiece of God because he was a holy man, a man of prayer, a man of action. In chapter one of the very book that bears his name, many of the Jews had escaped captivity only to find, uh, only to find their homes destroyed, their gates broken down, Their walls burned with fire. Sounds like America. Sing louder. He got to the point in verse four, he just couldn't take it anymore. I would to God that God would give us some preachers and some saints alike who just couldn't take it anymore. There's a problem in America, it's this ungodly affluence. Did you catch that? We got the best doctors, the best lawyers. We got the best food. We got the best economy in the world, at least for a while till China gets ahead of us. We don't feel A desperation for God. He is an appendage. He is an add-on. He is an also-ran. Everybody cheers when the football game goes into overtime, but moans when the preacher becomes too long-winded. We'll pay $6 for a cup of coffee and sit on our hands when we need to give a missionary offering. He couldn't take it anymore. In verse 4, your Bible records that when he heard that Israel was in such weakness and such devastation, have you looked around the modern church? Where are the evangelists? I want to call some evangelists. You know why there are so few evangelists? Because if you want a pastor, you just put a few hundred people together and they'll pay all your bills and they'll worship you like a king. But if you have to itinerate, you'll have to live by faith. God, this is good preaching. He saw all that, and your Bible said that he sat down. He was too weak to even stand. He was so overwhelmed with the blight and the drought and the devastation and the broken down walls. He didn't recognize Israel anymore. Where are our tears? Where's our burden? Some of y'all have family members that if they died in the next 15 minutes will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Where's our burden? How hard did we work to get them here tonight? Did we send a text? Did we dial a phone? Did we, did we send a memo? Did we invite a neighbor? No, because it's all about us. Some of you have drug-addicted children that if you'd have gotten them in here tonight could have been set free. Some of you have sick family members that if you would have gotten them in here tonight, God would have healed them. Now, I'm not mad at you, but like Nehemiah, I just have gotten to the point where I really can't take it anymore. You know what he did next, Miss Deborah? He wept. He wept. How many modern prophets in America do you see weep? They're too busy doing some slick offering. There are no tears. He wept, Alan. Like you do. He wept. And he mourned. I got a great idea. Let's have a morning service. That's what I grew up with. That's how I learned to pray. Watching the mothers and the fathers of the church travail all night over one of their family members. I've watched young people, 17, 18, 19 years of age, go back during an altar call and surround one young person and pray and fall on their faces while that person resisting the convicting power of God stood there and shook and wept. Where is the power of God? He prayed. He prayed, give us such a burden, God. Listen to that Pentecostal prophet, Joel's admonition, in chapter 1, verse 13. Here's a great clarion call: howl in the altar. Lay all night in sackcloth. I'll see it. In my day, I'll see it. I have that promise. I need somebody to shout that's had enough of empty hearts and empty altars. No, I need somebody to shout that's had enough. I need somebody to cry out to God. I need somebody to lift up your voice and how between the porch and the altar I need somebody that understands the sackcloth of repentance I need somebody God Almighty bring me back from the dead we're not here to feed fantasies we're not here to tickle fancies. I've come to see the church rise up from the boiling cauldron of ecumenicalism where everything's a church and everybody passes as a preacher. The church is nothing unless and until it becomes a catalyst of dynamic life change. Tonight, we set our collision course with the forces of darkness. Tonight, we take our families back. Somebody start crying out, devil, let my family go. Tonight we take this city back tonight we commit to the irreplaceable doctrine of the born again experience and the mighty baptism in the holy ghost tonight we lose ourselves from the restraints of religion and ritual tonight we lose ourselves from demonism and denominationalism from every sect from every superstition from terror and timidity tonight we weep between the porch and the altar tonight we take it back tonight we tell the devil to lose his hold on every one of us lose our minds lose our bodies lose our hearts to pray rend our hearts and not our garments break our hearts and give a burden and tomorrow we will change the world no anointing ever leaves the earth I take issue I'm ready now. no anointing ever leaves the earth say it no anointing ever leaves the earth It's just waiting on somebody to pick it up. (laughs) Mantles are lying all around you. Anointings are at your feet, and we walk past them in some kind of personal parade, a personal benefit to get our flesh something we think it needs. I received that word from God. I was asked to preach a funeral. Little white haired man, businessman. Don't even know if he, I, I believe that he was a teacher, a five fold ministry office gift teacher. I believe that. But he was a businessman. In 1979, we had one of the fastest-growing Baptist churches in the country. I told Bishop Bismarck, I said, you know, we started with 17 people in my backyard, in my parents' backyard. Clint Brown lived in that house. 17 people. Only five of them were not my family. We had no denominational backing, we had no financial backing. We didn't have a song book, we didn't have an offering plate. And I just started preaching. Within eight years, we built a 180-seat building. We filled it up five times. Then we built a 400 seat building. We filled it up five times. Eight months later, we built a 1200 seat building. And we had to go to four services six weeks after we moved into it. And before we moved out of it, a little over a year later, we were having five services. And we wait a minute. Wait a minute. Between the time that I was 20 years old and 28 years old, we moved into and filled up a 5,200 seat building. In eight years. COVID was a curse. We have to break its power. We have to lose ourselves. From its dominion. In 1979, my sister had an automobile accident, drove a femur bone through her pelvis, lodged it in her womb, and she was eight months pregnant. We were Baptists, we thought God's first name was O, but we knew how to pray. We heard about that little white-haired man. He had a ministry up the road from here for a long time. And what was that, Silver Springs or something like that? Crystal River, yeah, same thing. We had some friends. They said, if, if you'll take her to the Adams Mark Hotel in Indianapolis, Indiana, there's a little businessman there. He'll pray for her and she'll be healed. She was given three months to live, put on 39 prescribed medications a day vials of dimerol and dalmain and liquid morphine. And the doctor said, we give her three months. Keep her as comfortable as you can. She'll be gone. They said, if you'll take her down there, God will heal her. So we did. On the final night, he wrapped his arms around her and prayed for two hours and 45 minutes without letting her go. Where are those people? Two hours and 45 minutes. Weeping. 300 Bible college students threw folding chairs out of their way and got on their faces. Some went over the wall and pounded the wall while he was praying to support that anointing. One girl. Two hours and 45 minutes. When's the last time you prayed two hours and 45 minutes in a year for someone? Right? I'm not trying to condemn you. But if it convicts your heart, open your heart, repent, and say, God, fix me. Because he wants to do the miraculous through you the end two hours and 45 minutes, her leg went out backwards at a 45 degree angle. Myself and two other men, taller and heavier than me, got on her little 92 pound leg, framed leg and suspended their weight on it. Exhausted, they could not get it to move as she was screaming, don't let them take me. Don't let them take me. They're trying to take me. Demon power is real, church goer. Suddenly, her legs straightened out. Her face changed. And she looked at my mother and I and said, where am I? That's what you call woke. That's what you call back from the dead into the land of the living. I pray that such a power fall on you. I was preaching that man's funeral a few years ago. And when I walked to the pulpit, the first thing that came out of my mouth, which I had never said nor heard, is no anointing ever leaves the earth. Somebody's got to pick it up. I didn't come in here tonight by myself. I got Lester Sumrall's spirit on the left hand and Smith Wigglesworth on the right. I got a Amy Simple McPherson in front of me and Katherine Kuhlman behind me. And besides that, I'm full of the Holy Ghost that raised to life again, the three day dead body of the Prince of God. And he's here tonight to resurrect every dead body. Brother Sumrall was in Central America. He came across a witch doctor. He had a bullfrog in his hand. A bullfrog is a satanic symbol, in case you didn't know that. And he was dripping his own blood and mixing it with alcohol in the mouth of that bullfrog, and he'd close its mouth, and then he'd whirl and make incantations to demon spirits. And Brother Sumrall walked up to him, and he said, on Tuesday, we have counseling at our church. (laughs) Where are these people? He slapped a left hand on a right jaw, a right hand on a left jaw. And he said, you foul demon of hell, come out of him. The witch doctor fell over with a thud. That's what's going to happen to your 17-year-old. They're going to be in your living room, and the Spirit of God is going to come on you, and you're going to walk over to them. And when you get in their presence, they're going to fall to their knees, weeping and repenting and saying, my God, mom, you convict me of my sin.